So Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 7 to 10, which I recognize is not consistent with what I wrote in the little guide there. Sometimes the sermon title sounds so good that you just feel like you've got to keep it. And the, the what I say, redemption, uh, revelation, riches, all that sounds really good. Those must go together. Uh, we're going to cut riches off, and we'll cover that next week when we talk about the inheritance that we have. Uh, but we're going to talk about presently, currently, what we have today in Christ. The section before, we talked about this a lot on Wednesday, it was brought up um, that God is lavishing grace. Someone, someone pointed out, I think Peyton actually pointed out, and I loved it, the, 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 the reality that God is so gracious that when he gives us grace, he doesn't just give us a bit of it. He doesn't just do a kind thing on the side just to make us feel better. Is that he lavishes, he pours out grace onto us. But he doesn't just pour it out onto us um, as just us. He pours it out to us in the beloved one, which if you remember that, that beautiful story when Jesus is baptized and, and God, the, the clouds part, the dove descends and God says, the hearer's voice, he says, this is my beloved son. And so that declaration over Christ, that to, to be the most beloved son and all that comes with it, all the security and riches and love that comes with being God's beloved son is then turned and poured out to us. We get to identify as the beloved son, with the beloved son, with him. So that is what is ours. And so Paul then, what he's going to do is he's going to start to define a little more specifically um, the kind of grace that we've received. And so these are going to be the two things. This is the kind of grace that we have, that we currently possess in Christ. We have a redeeming grace and we have a revealing grace. We have a redeeming grace and a revealing grace. Redeeming grace because apart from Christ, Scripture says that we belong to another master, that we are actually enslaved to sin, and so we need redemption. We'll talk about that in a minute. The other one is we have revealing grace because, if we think about this, sin has separated us from God, and by being separated from God, we are also separated from any meaningful knowledge of him. We are so separated from God that we have no meaningful knowledge of him or any access to knowledge of him. So that when we are reconciled, when we receive redemption and we are reconciled to God, we are brought back into a new relationship where we can, we can truly know God, including things like the mystery of his will and his purposes, and ultimately things that delight him and please him. To know somebody is to not just know the facts about him, but to know the things that they want and the things that they love, right? And that's what we have now when we are redeemed and when we are brought into this uh, relationship with God. We have a redeeming grace and we have a revealing grace. So the first one, redemption. This is a, a heavy word. Um, it is all throughout the Bible. It's actually probably one of the great biblical themes uh, throughout scripture. And let me just give you a little bit of a definition. And I want to just point out a few things um, that we can understand about this idea of redemption as it's given to us in the Old Testament. Okay. So usually when we think of redemption, if we don't dive into the word specifically, we just think that this is God's salvation plan for us, that we have redemption means that we're saved, right? And that is a sense true, okay? But, but biblically, when we, think, when we see that word redemption or redeemer, okay, biblically the word has a little bit more of a specific meaning. And it actually focuses probably more on one supremely important, but just one aspect of our salvation, 
Okay? Redemption in Scripture, just this is sort of like a cold definition, involves the release of people or animals or property from bondage through outside help. Okay? It means the release of people or animal, animals or property from bondage through outside help. The social or physical or spiritual weakness of those being redeemed is actually what makes their redemption necessary. They are unable to redeem themselves so that only those who are strong enough or who are rich enough can provide redemption or can serve as a redeemer. Those are, those are real terms that are given to actual people in scripture. And obviously God plays a leading role in redemption, but he establishes this principle through the law. And so I just want to give you a few examples, okay? The idea of redemption in the Old Testament, I'd say most commonly, it's, it's used in, 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 a, in a very wide range of meaning, but the most common way it is used is to describe the role and the responsibility of a, um, a kinsman redeemer, okay? This is, a, this is an actual person in a family who serves in a role called the kinsman redeemer. And this redeemer was a close male relative, usually a brother or a father or an uncle or a cousin, who was obligated, obligated under Jewish family law to help relatives that were in distress or in bondage. Okay? What that meant, this redeemer would, one, they would buy back family property that had been mortgaged or sold off to pay debts. So if your family had a ranch and got in hard times and had to sell it off or mortgage it off to pay some debt, the, the kinsman redeemer was obligated to go and purchase that land back to restore that land and that property to the, to the family that it belongs to. Second, the, that kinsman redeemer was obligated to buy family members back from slavery. So if you, you fall in hard times, slavery in the Old Testament, by and large, was, a, was a, a voluntary servitude. It was a, it was a, a way in which you could pay your debts. I, I can't do it, so I'll work it off. And so you sold yourself into a kind of bondage where you'd work off that debt. And a, a redeemer was obligated to come and to pay that debt off and to buy you back, buy your freedom back. And not your freedom just sort of generally, but your freedom to join the family and be reunited with the family. So already we see, by God establishing these things, already we see that God cares about the unity of a family and he cares about the place that that family dwells. Right? We've talked a lot about this in our church. Right? That God cares about the family, and he cares about the places that we are, and the places that we occupy. But redemption, and sort of this uh, exchange of costs, so to speak, was also the, the root, the way of understanding justice. Okay? The law, when we read the laws, they're, they're mostly not just arbitrary lists of rules and do, do's and don'ts. Usually, oftentimes, they are instead an outline of fair costs. And so you get things like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, blood for blood. Okay? The kinsman redeemer then would serve as a um, title is used sometimes as the avenger of blood. The, the kinsman redeemer would go and would um, uh, enact justice. So if a family member was uh, killed or murdered unjustly, the kinsman redeemer would redeem that person's life, that family member's life, by uh, meeting out proper justice for that person, which usually meant going and killing that guy or something like that. And there's other laws that protected that from getting out of hand, but there was a responsibility on the redeemer of the family to come and redeem that guy's life by enacting justice, because justice required life for life. Also, okay, to die, 
To die without an heir, for a man to die without a, a proper heir in Israel was to weaken the whole clan because God doesn't want names or stories or histories or people to be erased. So to, to die without an heir was a, was a weakness for the whole family, for the whole clan. So this meant that the kinsman redeemer would marry the widow of a deceased relative to produce an heir for that relative. It wasn't even his heir. It was for the, the heir of the one who had deceased. Okay, this might be a strange practice. I don't know that this will ever come back necessarily, but you can read all about it in the book of Ruth, which is a wonderful story as well. Other texts suggest that the redeemer would also act as a kind of lawyer, would advocate the cause of a poor relative who was involved in a lawsuit and couldn't, couldn't defend themselves properly, uh, or who had been unjustly um, put in jail or something like that, they would, they would uh, fight for those things as well. Ultimately, though the kinsman redeemer served the family. The family was the thing that they, that they cared about the most and that they were obligated to. He protected the family against weakness. He restored its losses. He maintained its unity and he maintained its property and its place and its name. Okay, even here, like I said, we see God's care for unity in the family, the places where they are, okay? the places where God's family dwells. Ultimately, we can expect God is going to redeem and they will belong to God. This is what it means in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, that God's desire is to bring all things together in Christ. Everything that he has made is his and he will redeem those places and bring them back uh, into his dominion. These redemption mandates, this principle in the law, was grounded ultimately in the constant reminder. If you've ever read the law and you wonder how many times it happens over and over, how many times God says, I have bought you, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like these, they were reminded over and over and over that God has redeemed them. And this is the principle that they are going to live out by, by practicing redemption within their family. So the, the idea of redemption and even justice, all of these things are built on the fact that God himself has brought the people out of Egypt and he has redeemed them for himself. And so the kinsman redeemer exemplifies God, exemplifies his commitment to fulfilling his own covenant promises to the people that he had already called family. He'd already called them his family. And so the act of the kinsman redeemer was to exemplify God and his desire to constantly be bringing people back to himself. God would be the ultimate kinsman redeemer. And so this foreshadows, if you can't see where this is going, foreshadows the role of Christ as the ultimate and the final redeemer in the New Testament. Jesus, God's son, would come and he would take on human form. Think about how necessary all these steps are, that he would take on human form identifying with humanity so he could become our kinsman in order to offer us redemption. By giving his perfect and priceless and precious eternal life, he is the one who gave enough, provided enough of a payment to satisfy every debt and redeem every life once and for all. But that idea of payment, of price, is actually really important to this idea of redemption. And I, don't, I think that's the part that we don't necessarily allow our minds to go when we think of that we're redeemed. But redemption always involves a cost. Okay, this is where we are right now. So fast forward from Israel to here. Here we are. Weakened by sin, we find ourselves in bondage and in need of a redeemer. Scripture describes our bondage primarily as a bondage to sin. Let me read a few passages. Psalm 130, 7 to 8. 
says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all of its sin. That's what Israel needs to be redeemed from. That's what we need to be redeemed from. Isaiah 44, 22, which we actually just read to start the service. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Romans 6.20, Paul says, For you were slaves to sin. That's our condition. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved, it says, we are in bondage to sin. And so redemption requires that a price is paid. And redemption requires that the right price is paid. Psalm 49.7 says this, Yet these, speaking of man's wealth, and recognizing that man himself has an abundance, so to speak, of riches, says, yet these things cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. One should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. That's such an interesting verse. But what it means is our only hope, our only hope is to forever stop trying to redeem ourselves. This is what, um, this is the way that every heart is actually bent. Sin, sin has separated us from God when we wanted to be our own God. When we wanted to take matters into our own hands and live as our own God, sin separated us from him. But sin actually keeps us from God as well because sin causes us to want to not just be our own God, but to be our own savior. And so we work and we strive and we put on our best religious clothes and our best good works and we clean our life up just enough so that we can say, look, I'm doing as much as I can. The ones who come to Christ in the end and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Right? Jesus says, I never knew you. But what do they list off? They list off all these wonderful religious things that probably most of us have never done. Casting out demons, all kinds of stuff, right? They point to all this good stuff that he does, or that they've done, and Jesus says, I never knew you, because that's somebody coming and trying to be their own savior. Sin separates us from God when we want to be our own God, and sin keeps us from God when we want to be our own savior. And so this is the best way, I think, to understand repentance. We've used this a lot. We remind ourselves, ourselves and visitors all the time that the simple call is repent and believe. What is repentance? Repentance is not something that you do to earn forgiveness. Repentance itself is not a work. Repentance is, as this psalm just put it, it's how we forever stop trying. Repentance is where, how we give up. It's not a work. It's when we give up and we stop our rebellion and we stop trying to save ourselves. And so when Jesus calls us to repent and believe in him, he's calling us to recognize that the price is too high. And we can't pay it ourselves. We have nothing in ourselves to redeem ourselves. That's what repentance is. When you get to that point and you say, I have nothing and I give up everything. Paul actually says then later in, that, um, in Romans 6, this is verse 22. He says, but now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, just like in the Old Testament, the, the principle of redemption is based on this constant reminder that God possessed Israel, and just the same way God possesses us. God redeemed them, and they were his. Redemption and freedom, the, the one that we receive, it's not a liberation then to sort of live your life as you please. You're not, you don't receive this sort of general, and I would even say kind of American freedom, where you get to just be independent and live and pursue your dreams and do what you want. You were not set free to live your best life. You were set free in order to belong to God. So 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
The price for your redemption and your freedom was the life of God's own son. First Peter says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like gold or silver. You can't buy your redemption or your freedom from God. But it was bought for you, it says, with the precious blood of Christ. So this, if we can now dial in here on Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 7, this is what we have. Let's read verse 7 down to verse 10. Paul says, In him, or actually what he's saying is in whom. He's continuing his sentence from the, the praise of God's glorious grace that has been lavished on us in the beloved one, in Christ, in whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So this is what we have. So redemption. As Paul states it here in, in verse 7, redemption. I want to just highlight a few things. Number one, we have it. That's important. This is not something that we are only waiting for, although it is something we're waiting for, okay, which we'll talk about next week. I'm, I'm sorry if I created a tension there for you. It is something we're waiting for, but it is something he says right now that we have in Christ. In Christ, we have it. The freedom, the redemption from sin, and the security that we can own as one of God's own is ours. This is the greatest of all declarations, and I just want you to hear it. That in Christ, you have redemption. This is the greatest of all eternal get-out-of-jail-free cards, and it's yours. And I don't mean to cheapen it. It's not a stamp. It's not as if you actually have a card that you can just hold in your pocket and wait for the right time. It is... It is Christ himself. You've heard that song, I am his and he is mine. What a great declaration that I possess him. I possess all that is his. All that he is is mine and I am his. God sees you, as we've said, as he sees his beloved son. And it's actually, it's a far better than just to get out of jail free card. It's not just that Christ has freed us. It's not, listen to this, it's not just that Christ has freed us from jail time that we deserve. Okay? It's not that he just broke us out. He said, just, just here, break out, you run. Jail time that we deserve. He didn't just free us from that. God is just. He's always just, and he will not stop being just, and sin will be punished. The law of God requires a just and equal payment for the sin uh, that we have committed against God's holiness. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. It's all the same. Our redemption is not just freedom, as he says. It is forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And I want to understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not just, it's not just waving a wand. I know some have thought this before. Why? God in all of his wisdom and sovereignty and control and goodness, why not just wave the wand? Why not just forgive? Why did, why did he have to go through all this trouble? But forgiveness is not, a, is, is not a one. And we know this. In our own life, we know this. And we'll just give you a few examples. It's important to know that forgiveness is not a wand. It, as if the offense never happened. We don't say, I forgive you as if nothing ever happened. And it just sort of magically flitters away. Okay, think about this. If you were to buy a car from somebody 
and uh, your brother loans you $5,000 to buy that car. And then later he decides, because he's just good to you and nice and good brother, uh, that he's going to forgive you that debt. Okay, that would be a wonderful thing. But what doesn't change is the fact that $5,000 was paid to the seller. The cost doesn't go away. The one who forgives the debt has simply decided that he's going to absorb the cost. That's what forgiveness is. When someone offends you or damages your reputation, and when you forgive them, which we're called to do, when you forgive them, you aren't saying, hey, it's like it never happened. I'm just gonna pretend like it never happened. It may actually be like it never happened for the one you're forgiving, but for you, the truth is, you have simply, desired to, you've simply decided to absorb the cost of the offense. When you forgive, you are saying that you are actually willing to live with the cost of their sin against you, and you don't expect them to pay you back or make it right. But the cost happened. Your reputation was damaged. That cost doesn't go away. When you forgive, you say, I'll pay it. I'll accept it. I'll take it. I'll absorb it. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness always has a cost. Forgiveness always has a cost. And forgiveness can only, there's another important one, forgiveness can only be extended by the one who was hurt and who incurred the cost. One of our boys actually, uh, this is about a month ago, one of our boys threw a little ball and broke one of the little uh, old window panes on my parents' uh, front door. Okay? Now, if you can imagine, um, one of my sons realizing that he'd done something wrong and he comes up to me and my dad. Okay, it's my dad's house, his window. Comes up to me and my dad and he says, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I sit down and I go, you know what? I forgive you. It's like it never happened, right? I can't, I can't do that because my dad still has to fix the window. It doesn't matter what I do or what I say, it, it, there's still a cost and someone's gonna pay it. What I can do, what I can say, because I can't forgive him of the cost, what I can say is I'll pay it for you or I'll take care of it. I'll pay it, I'll, I'll make sure it's fixed, right? Or my dad can step in and say, hey, Bear, don't worry. Oh, I wasn't going to say his name. <laughs> my dad can step in and say, hey, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. No matter what happens, again, forgiveness always has a cost. And what never will change in that scenario is that 20 bucks in a couple hours is going to be spent to fix the window. And it's just a matter of who's going who's to absorb the cost. But it has to, the offense ultimately has to be forgiven by the one who incurs, uh, incurs the, the hurt or, or the injury. So forgiveness means, just remember this, forgiveness means that the forgiver absorbs the cost. And so what it says is, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is the cost. The precious and priceless blood of Jesus is the only eternally sufficient currency to purchase your life and freedom. The precious and priceless blood of Jesus is the only eternally sufficient currency to purchase your life and your freedom. And lastly, this is according to God's grace, which it says is a wealth of grace that he richly pours out on us. And I just love this reminder and I wanna come back to it again. With every good thing that we've received, this gift of redemption bought and paid for with Jesus' own life is a gift straight from God's own hand. And as Paul says here, it's not just a nice thing that God did for us, it's an expression of the wealth, the endless extravagance of God's grace. So it makes sense that this would all begin with us praising God. Bless God, 
for this wonderful gift that he has blessed us with. That's redemption. That's what we have in Christ. We have his own life as a payment for what we deserved so that he can bring us into this new reconciled relationship with the Father. And so then what comes out of that is a revealing grace. This is revelation. I'm going to do this much quicker, I promise. What I should point out is in the text, it says, In him we've received, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us. And, and actually, I think um, there's good reason to believe, and, and, and many scholars agree, that um, with all wisdom and understanding, that the way the sentence is made up probably has more to do with what comes after it than before it. So really what it's probably saying is that he has richly poured out this grace on us, providing us redemption and forgiveness. And he's provided us with all wisdom and understanding to, to know the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure and, the, and his purposes in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So actually the wisdom and the understanding, I, th I think it's, it's, it's more likely that this is just another thing now that he has given us. And I think this is important, okay? Reconciliation with God, we alluded to this at the beginning, reconciliation with God, it means a re-relationship. It means being brought into a relationship with God that you were designed for, intended for. So I, this is why I will, can always hearken back to the picture in the garden that was right before Adam that he turned from and didn't, didn't join. But the offer to walk with God in the garden, right, to know him and to be with him and to be in that kind of relationship with him is what Adam was offered and what he turned from. And, and this is what we are being reconciled into, is that kind of intimacy, a re-relationship, and so a new knowledge, a new access to know the one that we were made to know. And part of this new relationship of knowing God means that we are now near to him, not just spiritually and not just one day physically near to him, but we are brought near even to his mind and to his heart and to his will. We are no longer held in the dark regarding his will and his purposes and, and the things that ultimately please him and delight him. And so the grace we've received is a revealing grace. In Christ, with redemption, we begin a new life of understanding and knowing the joys and the longings of God's own heart. I think this is how we can understand what happens on the cross. The moment, when you think of that moment when Jesus cries out from the cross, when God has turned from him, the one with whom he has enjoyed the most eternal and perfect union, Jesus cries out to God in that moment. He says, my God, my God, why? Why? I don't think that that's some sort of illustrative expression. I think this is what happens when you are forsaken by God. You're not just forsaken by his face. You're forsaken from even knowing what is in his heart and in his mind and in his will. And in that moment, Jesus, on the cross, forsaken by God, didn't understand. I think it's okay to say that, that he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And that question of why is an expression of the kind of understanding that we want and we want to, want to know. We want to know the why. We're all, we're all wrestling with this and the world is wrestling with the why constantly. And it says that when we're reconciled to him, that we enter into that moment, that thing that Jesus set aside, the thing that he had every right to and every eternal position to know and to, be, to enjoy, 
to know the why, and he, he experienced that separation from God so that we could be brought in and experience that why, to experience that understanding and that, under, that knowledge of God and his will. We've been reconciled to God through Christ's separation from God. He bore the distance from God so that we could be brought near to him, into his heart, into his mind. And so our reconciliation means that we can know things like the purpose and the mystery of God's will and his pleasure. And so it's right here. God has made himself known. Such a beautiful and enormous and cosmic idea. God has made himself known. While sin creates a separation from God that we can't overcome. Okay? Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you, of God, you and God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins, it says, have hidden his face from you. Okay? And if we were to think about what happens when God... What, what is God, how does God respond to us covered in sin? And, and, and it, it would be really easy to think, well, what he does is he lashes out in judgment and he wants to pour out his wrath. He hates us. He rejects all these kinds of things. And maybe those things are all true in their own way. But what Isaiah says, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. He uses the most basic relational terms, the ability to communicate with each other as the result of our sin. We're separated from God we can't know. We can't hear. We can't understand him. We can't communicate with him. That is what our sin has caused. So we can't know, truly know God by our own efforts. It means that God himself must act and reveal himself because, as we already said, God always acts and reveals and loves first. So this is the fresh revealing grace that we have in Christ. We have access to God and an opportunity to know so his, all, his wisdom and all understanding Right? To know how it is, the thing that we're all struggling to do, the world is all struggling to do, how to live right in this world in light of who he is and who we are and what the world is like that he's created for us to live in. It allows us to know the mystery, the one that, a mystery that is, was previously hidden, the mystery of God's will, ultimately this beautiful plan to bring everything together in Christ. To know that, to understand that that's where all of this is going, to unite all things in Christ, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to know and to live for now. And that ultimately, that this pleases God. This makes him happy. To know what makes God happy is a very advantageous thing to know, right? That's a good thing to know. What makes God happy? And ultimately, I think it's helpful to understand that this is very much leads into kingdom language. The idea, the, the fact that all of these things are being brought together in or or as Paul says in other places, under Christ. That we are working, not just to sort of bring everything into a single room, but to bring things under the dominion and headship of Christ. That's why Paul will start to describe how Christ is the head of the church. We are acting out this dominion. We're the first examples, the first fruits, so to speak, of this plan to bring all things together. We express that here when we're in the room. We need to put a few less chairs and we can kind of tighten up and we can get together a little bit more. But we are expressing that plan in this little room, in this little place, in this little city, in the state of Idaho, on this side of the world. We're expressing that plan right here when we're together to bring all things together in Christ. And this is part of his kingdom and his dominion and the things that he's going to rule over because he is the one who created them and he owns them and he will have what is his. And so we'll just circle back now and, and point out the one obvious thing that we've, we've missed is that all of these things are available to those who are in him. All spiritual blessings are ours 
redemption, freedom, and forgiveness from sin, to belong to God forever as his children and to know him. This is found in Christ, which also means it's not found anywhere else. It's found in Christ. So the real question, the real question is, how do we gain Christ? How do we, how can we be found in him? And Paul is actually going to address this um, in some sense, at least, at the end of this prayer. So if you just fast forward a little bit to verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed in him, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believe what is being preached about Christ, about your sin, about your need for redemption, when you believe that it's not just with your head, but you believe it with your life, and so you respond, you actually do something about it. You respond by forever giving up, as the psalm said. You repent and you believe in him, in Christ. When you believe that it was his life and only his life that was good enough and valuable enough, that it was only his death that was costly enough, that he is your only hope to escape the death that you deserve and the sin that enslaves you, and that's, that's it. Repent and believe in Christ. That's the call. If you do that, then you are his. We'll explore more of what that means next week, but you are saved and you are sealed, it says. You are redeemed and you are adopted. You are part of God's family. You're part of God's plan to bring everything together in Christ. If you've not received this, or if what I'm saying to you is totally foreign, okay, then don't wait. Repent. Give up. Decide now that you will forever stop trying and believe in Jesus. And if you have, if you, if you have received him, then don't presume that this is not for you, okay? As a church that is intent on being a gospel-centered church, we will remind you that we don't receive the gospel and then mature onto other things, okay? We will put the gospel in the center of everything we are and everything we do every single week. And if I preach the same message over and over and over and over and over and you get tired of it, that's your fault, it's the gospel, we're going to do it every single week, as long as we can. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, As you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If if you are in Christ, then you are called to live in the same repentance and faith that you began in. If you are in Christ, you are called to live in the same repentance and faith that you began in. And many of us need this reminder Many of us need this reminder. We don't believe the gospel and move on. If we don't know and believe and live according to the gospel every day, if we don't recognize every single day the cost of our own redemption that was paid for us, if we don't remember this every day, then we, then we have nothing. Okay, And, and this is sort of probably a, a waste of religious energy. So, wherever you are, I'm just going to Ben can come up here in a second. Um, I'm going to say, I'm just take a few moments, 20, 30 seconds, and say what you got to say. Respond to God how you need to respond to God. Okay? And then I will, I will close this in prayer, and we'll sing one more song, and we'll finish up. So take the next few moments here. Talk to God on your own.